Hello, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Apshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter using our handle Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray and I and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. We've interviewed over 200 guests uh, on Disrupt TV. So please check out our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Also consider subscribing to our YouTube and Vimeo uh, under Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's a best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and ZDNet, and one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, and I'm happy to be joined here by my co-host, Bala Afshar, as you all know, the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, one of the top CIO, CMO influencers in the world, heavy contributor, Huffington Post, author, writer, even an engineer in his past life, and now, actually, first time ever not wearing a suit jacket. So <laughs> welcome to the show. Happy Friday, everybody. But we've got an awesome guest. Let's start there. It is an honor and a privilege for us to have Bruce Cleveland, founding partner of Wildcat Venture Partners, where he focuses on investments in artificial intelligence and marketing, ed tech, enterprise software as a service, and Internet of Things. Bruce likes working with early stage companies that use technology and data to increase revenue and decrease cost. He's also interested in growing entrepreneurial hubs outside of Silicon Valley with particular focus on Pacific Northwest. Bruce is committed to sharing his knowledge and expertise through Traction Gap Framework, which we're going to talk about, which helps entrepreneurs navigate the critical go-to-market period between initial product release and reaching minimal viable traction. He has had senior executive roles in engineering, product management, product marketing with companies such as Apple, AT&T, Oracle, and Siebel, you know, small companies you may have heard of. <laughs> he began his venture capital career at InnoVest Partners, where he was the first investor and a former board member of Marketo. And as you know, uh, Marketo uh, held an IPO in 2013 and was acquired by Vista Equity Partners in 2016, just three years later, for nearly $2 billion. So an incredible uh, experience, VC. You can follow Bruce on Twitter. Highly recommend, at BruceVC. And you know he was an early adopter there, or you wouldn't get that alias. B-R-U-C-E-V-C. Welcome, Bruce, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks, Lala. Thanks, Ray. Great having you. Hey. You know, it's awesome having you here. And uh, when we think about, you know, all the stuff that you've done in the past, that level of expertise, um, you know, from just building products to being on the other end of being a startup, being a VC yourself, um, what, what's your role at Wildcat? And let's talk more about, you know, why you actually started the, started the firm and, and what the thesis is about. So Yeah, um, great question. So um, I actually wear a couple of hats here. Uh, we're a startup. Um, as a VC, so we're uh, we have a lot of those same issues that you're faced with product companies as a startup. We have brand issues that we have to worry about. How do we compete against uh, a lot of very talented venture firms for great deals and great entrepreneurs? Um, we have uh, we have governance, right? We have to we have to run the partnership, and we have to make great investments. And so coming together and, and um, in the confluence of those things 
to make an enduring, sustainable, uh, great venture firm and brand um, takes a lot of time. And so uh, I act um, as the chief marketing officer. So um, it's my fault, uh, the website, and, uh, the, um, and had to come up with some special um, positioning for our firm to differentiate what we do from other venture capital firms, much like I had to do when I was a CMO at Siebel. Um, I had to, you know, create some uh, interesting positioning for us. And just like with our companies that have to create positioning, um, I act um, in that capacity here. But I'm also, as a founding partner, I help govern the firm. And I also make investments. Um, and I do one other thing. Uh, I'm not just an investor. I'm also an entrepreneur. I have two companies I founded here. Um, and, uh, and, and help run them as well. So it's a, it's a busy life for me. It's not golf and, uh, and jet setting around the world. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I actually do real work. But you talk about this first and, and, and what is this, right? I mean, it sounds like it's part of the thesis about the types of companies you're investing in, right? What, what's, what's underlying that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, if we think about the um, the 20th century, where land, capital, oil drove the industrial age, right, and and that created this unfathomable wealth uh, for um, for the early uh, wildcatters of of that century. You know, in the 21st century, the wildcatters are technologists, right, and what they're doing is developing systems of intelligence that enable other companies and consumers to prospect, refine, and monetize digital oil or data. And so the, the types of companies that we're investing in um, and, the, and the first intelligence age is really around the capitalization um, and monetization uh, of data. And, and we see a lot of companies that are emerging, right? These are the, the Facebooks, the, the Amazons, the... Um, uh, you know, the Alibaba. I mean, these are great companies that are transforming the um, and upending uh, the way in which we um, we thought about the way the capital um, or the way that companies could be built, et cetera. So monetization schemes are different. Um, the types of companies that are being created are different. The way that we look at how we're building them uh, are different. And the first intelligence age is really taking advantage of those opportunities, which is this macro digitization across the globe. Yeah, that's amazing. You just mentioned, you know, some of the largest, some of the most valued companies in the world. In fact, I think for the first time, seven of the top 10 most valued companies, uh, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Tencent, Alibaba, are all from the same industry. And they're all data-driven, software-oriented, uh, companies. Um, so I, I want to talk about this concept of traction and traction gap. We had the lean startup uh, philosophy and the lean launch pad with um, uh, Steve Blank and Eric Reese uh, that talked about helping early stage startups make a transition. We had the, the Chasm concept developed by Jeffrey Moore, who now works very closely with my company, Salesforce, helping again uh, visionaries. Uh, uh, create a go-to-market and differentiation. But there's been very little uh, documentation and coaching and framework around early stage to Main Street success. And I think that's where you know, you're building a thesis and, and your guiding principles. Can you talk a little bit about this traction gap and what um, companies need to do to create sufficient momentum and attract new investors and grow their business? Yeah, um, yeah sure. I'll, so here's, here's how uh, we look at it. The, um, when we came together as, as a new 
as a new firm, just like you would come together as a product company, you, you do some introspection. What's the market opportunity? What products do you see that you, you're going to build? Uh, what strengths and weaknesses are among the team? Um, and when we looked at ourselves, we took a look at our track records of, of making investments. Where had we made the most successful investments? When? And what we realized out of that was that all of us, um, the vast majority of, the, of our best investments came very, very early. Uh, companies at ideation or at maybe not even at initial product release that, that they had, um, they were sort of in the, the, the prototypical stage. Um, why? When, when you take a look at the facts, 80, maybe 90% of, of all startups fail to ever make it in terms of ret even returning capital or just fail you know, outright. Wow. Yep. Why was it that we, um, when we looked at our own track record, where roughly two out of three companies that we had invested in at very early, no signal, right? You don't, you don't, this is PowerPoint investing. It's not <laughs> spreadsheet investing, right? Why? There's a lot of smart people. We're not, uh, what makes us different? What we realized that we all came, we were all formerly entrepreneurs. We helped to build companies um, from, uh, from maybe not at ideation, but very early on. Um, and we had a lot of lessons from those learnings to help then go on to build each of us billion dollar companies. Those lessons, we didn't have a common vernacular for it, but we realized we did have shared learning from it. And so what I did is I brought with me after 10 years of being on the, uh, the venture side, I brought with me some ideas, um, which is terminology, concepts, et cetera, and I laid it out at our first meeting. And in fact, one of our partners is Jeffrey Moore. Um, so um, it was uh, a very interesting experience because what I was going to talk about, about this framework, this traction gap framework, really precedes the chasm. You know, that's really, um, if we think about it, there's three phases that a company has to go through, and even a product line inside of a company uh, has to go through this. The first is the go to product phase. That's the ideation. That's the that's the Steve Blank. That's the Eric Reese time. That's when, okay, what are we going to build? What's the market, etc. What features? And there's a lot of help there. You know, if we think about it, there's Y Combinator. There's yeah. Google Pad. There, the Angel Pad. Um, there's um, a plug and play. There's a bunch of help. There's there's angel investors, ex operating people. Um, you know, the Thai group here in the Valley. I mean, there's a lot of really great help for you as to come up with how do I build that product? And we're taught if we go to an engineering school, how to build a product, right? And we, we, we learn engineering skills. We learn how to post things in GitHub. I mean, we, we learn a lot about that. Phase three, so I'm going to skip phase two for a second. Phase three is the go to scale phase. That's the Jeffrey Moore domain. We have a product. It works. Now I'm worried about going to Europe. I'm worried about how do I do that? Maybe it's a multi-tiered comp plan. Maybe it's channels. Maybe I've got additional products I have to bring together, right? Or, or, or so former crown colonies. Yeah, exactly. Wrong, yeah. There's, there's a lot of help there too, right? And, and so and 25, 30 years of people who will help you scale your company. Um, McKinsey does a lot of that work, right? I mean, we're, th this is a, an area that's tried, tested, and proven. People have a lot of ideas about doing that and very, very successfully. In between phase one and phase two is this period of time, this, fa this fa phase three. Fa phase two is the period of go to market. And what we discovered as we took a look at what made our team successful versus other teams in that period, it wasn't about product. 
most people have been able to successfully build products. It may take longer, a little more capital, maybe a lot more capital. Um, but for the most part, people, um, I've, I've been involved in building a, a bunch of products. Almost all of them have succeeded in terms of uh, we, what we decided to build and, and delivering it, we did from that standpoint. Where it all goes horribly awry is that initial go-to-market period because it's yep. not just about the product. We have to complement the product with a revenue architecture, a team architecture, a systems architecture that powers you know, the team and the product into the market. And our mistake, many mistakes, is that we give a pile of capital as venture capitalists to a really good product team, that is a team that can build a product, but they've never built a revenue architecture. They don't know what the, what the, what, how do you, how do you decide who the VP of sales is or the VP of marketing? When do I bring them on board? Right. So what we did is we realized we we're pretty good at it um, individually. And so we decided to create a taxonomy and a, and a construct, a framework, and to label it. We decided to label these value inflection points as you move as a company along the maturity line call them something we when we use the terms that Steve and Eric came up with so we started with minimum viable product and then something later on called minimum viable repeatability and hmm. something called minimum viable traction and then we attached after 50 60 70 interviews with CEOs and founders of great companies that you've heard of we captured all of their strategies and tactics and we decided to publish a playbook so if you go to TPG or Vista Equity, these great big private equity firms, they've got operating playbooks, right? And they bring in their team and you go through the process and that's what they run. There is or there hasn't been an operating playbook for early stage venture and we've written it and we published it. We created the Traction Gap Institute. It's a separate entity that we underwrite. We All bring that. in people every quarter to talk about these issues, team, product, systems, revenue, and we expose the metrics, the tactics, the strategies that others have used during this black box time period to make others successful. So that's what this framework is. It's the first that's ever been published of its kind, and we're, we're giving back by exposing what others have done so that way we can have much better success rates than have ever been had before from early stage venture. Bruce, that's awesome. I hope all the startup founders are, are watching and I certainly look forward to summarizing your shared wisdom in Huffington Post. That was great, that was great. Thank you. You bet. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And and what's interesting about this is, right, that go-to-market piece, right, I mean, it starts. If you choose the wrong set of customers first, you're, you're screwed, right? And that's part of all those kind of things. Or, you know, if, if you lay out a sales architecture or leadership architecture that will get you to the first 50 million, it may be different at the next 100 million, right? So you take into account all those different factors from from all, from all your interviews and learnings. And we also complement ourselves. I mean, yeah, it's great that, we, that we've that we done things, but we have John Baird, who was uh, Steve Jobs' coach. And oh, yeah. coach. John Baird is a part of the, of the Traction Gap Institute. He's available to our portfolio companies in terms of doing, of helping with team architecture. Um, if we talk about revenue architecture, we work with Tom Moore, who has CEO Quest, which oh, wow. has 
phenomenal program about revenue architecture. So it's not just about us. We bring in the best and brightest from different areas as part of our, and we go through a traction gap assessment with our portfolio companies. That leads to an action plan. That leads to a set of proficiencies and deficiencies that need to be shored up. And so we bring in these other groups around revenue product team and systems to help in that process. We're not a concierge firm like a Andreessen, um, but what we do is we complement our teams with these outside groups that you would never be able to get access to. I mean, you know, Jeff, I mean, he's, he's uh, yeah, Mark Benioff, yeah. you know, one of his help uh-huh. is a chief strategist. So we, we get great people to help us. And hopefully, I mean, obviously it's, it's going to benefit our limited partners um, but it and, 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 and us as well, but more importantly, it helps the entrepreneurs realize you know the, the dream that they that they have, which is building an endurable, sustaining company. No, this is awesome, and, and this is really taking us into the uh, third generation of VCs, right? Being able to not only access the networks, but to be able to operate properly, and, and it actually puts you in a great position to compete with the PE firms at this point, especially as, as the way they've been operating, so it makes a lot of sense. So you get a lot of pitches, right? You probably see a lot of things that happen to you all the time. And what, what's hot? What's trending to you that says, okay, yeah, these are some kind of theses that are going to make it? And what's stuff that you just say, oh, yeah, this is dead. You know, don't, don't call me about, like, IoT or something like that. So. <laughs> um, well, the cool thing about this whole digitization effort is it's completely upending everything that we've known about. You know, every company is going to have to go through this, of all sizes, are going to have to transform if they want to compete and, and, uh, and be sustaining. So um, there's no real, um, there's nothing that's really exempt from that process, which makes it super exciting because it means that you can go after virtually anything. Um, and just because there's a big incumbent in there doesn't mean you can rewrite the, ca- it means you can rewrite the category, redefine the category and make that incumbent have to compete um, in a way that they wouldn't expect. I mean, it's kind of like what Mark did at Salesforce with Siebel, right? He, rec- he created a new category of cloud CRM and that turned out to be a bigger category. So, you know, just because you're big doesn't mean that you are not vulnerable. And we're trying to find the soft belly of a lot of different industries right now. And you have that. And when I look at your partner list, right, you got someone that's a hired ed expert. You got someone that's been in fintech. You got, I mean, someone that's even, even on the Olympic planning community. I mean, that, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so, so you're looking at all angles. And it sounds like you're looking at business model disruption that might have a exponential technology like AI on the back end. Would that be fair to say? Like if yeah, somebody was trying know, to pitch you, that would be like a good candidate? No, that, that would be. In fact, I, I've, even, I've even done something that's not even really technical. Um, it's in the education space. It's an alternative form of education. So it's a new model for educating. It's short form learning. Uh, it's a micro, it's called GreenFig. It's a micro university offering micro degrees, so smaller degrees about a, a semester in applied business science juxtapositioned against data science. So there's roughly only about four and a half, five percent of all jobs are STEM related in the U.S., yet everyone's focused on STEM, right? I mean, you got to go to a coding academy, um, et cetera. I, and this is, I, I find it quite, you know, it's, it's, it's rather Comical. interesting why, why we're doing that. But the net is, is that the vast majority of the, of the rest of the jobs are vocational or, or what we used to think of as professional. And so, What's driving business? This, uh, it's, it's new types of business application software from Salesforce, from Marketo, from NetSuite, et cetera. And 
Are we actually training people how to operate and set up this soft machinery to run the 21st century? Not really. And no single vendor really offers all the technologies that are needed. So what we teach is the science of the function and then give them hands-on training with the software, getting preparing them for certification from Salesforce or from Marketo, et cetera. And then we also give them work experience. So the result is we have about an 80-85% placement rate with wow. our graduates, which mm-hmm. is, you know, if you take a look, if you have a liberal arts degree in philosophy, you're going to probably be a barista at Starbucks unless you get something that's practical. And within one semester, we try to give you the work experience, et cetera. And so I think this is that's, this isn't a technology play, right? We, 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 um, it, it's really around rethinking the things that we always took for granted. And I think that's the cool opportunity here is rethinking things that we've taken for granted. That's amazing. Bruce, my final question to you, uh, advice to startup founders working with VCs. What, what do you look for uh, in order to know that you're actually investing in the right person or team uh, even before you look at the technology or you know, whatever capabilities they're pitching to you? Yeah, um, you know, one, one of the little secret things I'd look for is, is were they an athlete? Did they compete? Discipline. Yeah, Did, right, right. Yeah, and it, it's also the, the the ability to put fear aside and and to be to be completely dedicated to your craft i have found that people who are dedicated athletes can be also very good um and you could be athletic in different ways i mean you could be a chess master too right it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a a sport per se but the this competing this competition thing turns out to be super important as a dna characteristic of the best entrepreneurs. Um, we don't talk about it a lot. You know, a lot of people don't, but it's one of the things I look for on the resume when I'm looking through there. What if you, you know, and even if it's doing, um, as an adult, participating in a, in a, a soccer league, et cetera, it's just, it's, it's, that, piece, it's that piece that is, um, I, I think it's hard to, um, to, to develop that. It has to be innate to your personality. So that's what I look for. I mean, there's lots of other things, but I think if I pulled one, it's one of the hidden ones. That's a great, you're, you're self-taught, you're disciplined, you love the competition, you're not afraid of failure. I get that. I mean, that's a great, great <laughs> DNA marker to look for. I, I love that. We are, we are here with Bruce Cleveland, founding partner of Wildcat Ventures, more importantly, a big thinker, systems thinker, applying what he's learned to VC startups, and more importantly, helping folks mentor themselves so using the traction gap method. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show, and uh, hope to see you around in the Valley. Thanks a lot, Ray. Thanks a lot, Vala. Thanks, Bruce. All right. Ray, we could have talked to Bruce for an hour. He, he's awesome. <laughs> I know. We, we, we probably should come up with a startup for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we got to get a breaking business models. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, uh, talking to an incredible uh, futurist and a venture capitalist, and we're going to shift our, uh, our, our focus to our next guest, uh, Leslie Berlin, author of Troublemakers. So we're going to talk about troublemakers. I know Ray is one of them. And, uh, <laughs> and a project historian at Stanford University. Uh, Leslie has been a fellow at Center of Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Science and served on the advisory committee on the Lemelson Center for the Study of uh, Invention and Innovation at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. The Washington Post said that the man behind the microchip, Leslie's definitive biography of microchip co-inventor and Intel co-founder Robert Noyce, is 
must required reading for today's entrepreneurs and executives. So an accomplished author already. Leslie was a prototype columnist for the New York Times and has commented on Silicon Valley for the Wall Street Journal, um, NPR, PBS, BBC, uh, at The Atlantic, The Wired. So lots of folks uh, solicit Leslie's uh, thought leadership in terms of technology, innovation, history of the Valley. You can follow Leslie on Twitter at L-E-S-L-I-E-B-E-R-L-I-N-S-V. Welcome, Leslie, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for being Yeah. Hey, and thanks a lot. It's been a while since the last time we were at the Computer Science History Museum uh, for the Atlantic. I remember watching you uh, speak uh, at That's the beginning of that I process uh, before the book. Yes. All right. Bing, bing, bing. We, had, we were there. We were there. It was like, I think Guy, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? A whole bunch of folks. Like, we literally were sitting there, and I just remember like seeing you there. So, but tell us about your new book, Troublemakers. This is like this has been in the making, and uh, it, it tells some great stories. So, let's start there. Like, what's the genesis, and what got you to write this? And and we really need a historian in the valley. We have short-term memory where we live. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of an occupational hazard of a place that's always focused on the future. But, you know, uh, Steve Jobs was the person who said to me, you can't understand what's happening today if you don't understand what came before. And that's really what I see as my task. Both I, I'm uh, at Stanford and we have a Silicon Valley archives there. And our job is to preserve that history so people can understand it now and in the future. And then in my books, too. So this book looks at this incredible little window of time in the 1970s where Silicon Valley went from being this place that was really sort of gearhead chip engineers selling to other gearhead people who buy chips and nobody had heard of Silicon Valley. It wasn't even called Silicon Valley. There were orchards all over the place. And in the space of really just about a dozen years, you had what I say is the foundations of Silicon Valley today and also our whole modern tech world. So you have the birth of the personal computer and the whole industry, the birth of biotech, the video game industry, the modern venture capital industry. You have the first ARPANET transmission, which of course we all know morphs into the internet coming into SRI You know, at Stanford. You have the first time that Silicon Valley is really reaching out to Washington DC to try to make a name for themselves with the government. And you have kind of the birth of the celebrity entrepreneur. This is all happening in like 35 square miles, about, you know, about 10 years. And it's just this, it's, it's like watching the big bang happen. And that's what this book is about. That's amazing. And I think it's, we're about to celebrate the 70th anniversary of uh, William Shockley's invention of the transistor, which yeah. helped, some argue helped shape Silicon Valley today, uh, one of the major major events, um, um, and 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 I think you 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 you, uh, you, you mentioned that in in, in your book. Um, but my question is, uh, let's talk about uh, the role of, of of women in in that small period that you cover in your book, and the barriers that they, that they face today, and how does that compare to today in terms of women pursuing a tech career in Silicon Valley or just technology industry as a whole. Yeah, so um, I profile seven people in my book. Um, I needed them all to be unknown. They all needed to be important. And they all needed to be a super interesting story. So some of these people are men, like uh, Mike Markula, 
who owned a third of Apple with Jobs and Wozniak, and which uh, no one seems to know, um, or that he is the person who made that company. He took that company from the garage with, admittedly, two geniuses, to uh, the first, the youngest company ever to make the Fortune 500. So there are people like Mike in the book and Bob Taylor, who convinces the oh, Department yeah. of Defense to start the ARPANET, and then he runs the computer science lab at Park that Jobs visits and sees. PCs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there, there are people like that who maybe the very inside baseball people know, but most people don't know. And, and I'm interested in these people. Oh, Al Alcorn, who's the designer behind Pong. Um, someone at Stanford, who's the person who convinces Stanford, you know what, let's take the ideas that our faculty and staff are coming up with and our students and, oh, I know, how about we patent those? And that's how Stanford, which had made less than $3,000 in the previous 13 years from all the IP coming out of the university. That is how Stanford now has $2 billion that has come in, and that's how they had a stake in Google, had a stake in VMware. That's how they got a stake in the recombinant DNA patent that launched the whole biotech industry. So I have those people in the book. Those are all guys. Um, I have women in the book, too. And I have to say, I did not pick these women because they are women. I picked them because they were doing something important that we need to understand about the Valley. So this is the birth of the software industry. And we were just talking about how important software is. Well, in 1969, IBM is forced to unbundle its hardware and software. And this is what gives birth to the software industry. Before, the same company sold both. and. Uh, one of the women I look at is a, a woman named Sandy Kurtzig. So Sandy starts a software company uh, that's called Ask. And at this time, software is so outside of the norm. All the money's going into hardware, all of it, right? Everything's a chip or a computer or a phone or, you know, a, a phone system, not, not a mobile phone like we have now. So she's totally outside the system. Even Larry Ellison tells these stories about going to try to get venture money and not only being basically thrown out of the office, but they want to look inside his briefcase to make sure that this shady guy, you know, didn't steal a copy of Business Week on his way out, you know. And Sandy's doubly cursed because she's a woman and she's in software. So people literally think that she is selling lingerie uh, when she says that she is selling the software. And, I've, uh, and another woman I profile is a woman named Fawn Alvarez whose story is incredible because it, it reveals a, a something about the Valley that nobody seems to know, which is that there used to be factories here. She starts yes. out picking plums. She's 12 years old when the book opens, and she's picking plums for pocket money in the bucolic hamlet of Cupertino and uh, in those <laughs> orchards that were everywhere, you know. And she ends up with a job well, with a manufacturing line. Yeah, exactly. You might – yeah. I mean, she talks about, you know, how they would ride their bikes down the – basically empty two-lane road that was Stevens Creek Boulevard, you know. It was, it's hard for us to realize now that this was really kind of the boonies, beautiful, beautiful boonies, but boonies nonetheless. And uh, she ends up working on the manufacturing line at Rome, which is one of these super important companies that a lot of people don't know about anymore, and eventually jumps into uh, rising, actually, to the level of the equivalent of the, the TA for uh, the head of IBM Rome, the president of IBM Rome. And Fawn's story is so important because it really shows us something about how there used to be, everyone's talking about uh, the 
the wealth gap, of course, in the valley. And this is kind of where you see it starting is when these jobs go away because she was able, even on the line, she was able to buy stock at a reduced price. She had uh, six, they had 12 weeks of paid vacation. Everyone in the, in the whole company, after six years of service, you just were given a sabbatical, you know, for 12 weeks paid. And this was, this is just something that ended up getting hollowed out, of course, as those jobs left. And I, I just, I actually saw Sandy Kurtzig uh, this week and I was asking her because she, you know, she faced some just horrible things, you know, people telling her to go get coffee, even though she's the CEO of the company. People think she was a booth babe. She was very beautiful and people tend to, to think that if she was in the booth. And um, I was asking her, so is, you know, was it worse or better now? And she was saying, of course, the opportunities for women now are much better than they were in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, that sort of goes without saying. But she said, back then, you knew what you were up against. I mean, people would just flat out say to her, look, a woman can't do this, uh, especially because she was selling manufacturing software. So, I mean, again, like she, it was about as hard a situation she could set up for herself as possible. Um, and she was saying, now, you know, you just, you, you don't really know. It's, it's much more subtle. Um, and I thought, that was, I thought that was a very interesting point that she made. She's the first woman oh. to take a tech company public, right? She was the first woman to take a tech company public. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. And, and you know, she actually brought this company up. I mean, something that I talk about a lot in the book and that we all know about now are these sort of networks that made it possible and continue to make it possible for innovation to happen at the sort of rate that it does. Uh, she brought this company up completely outside of those networks. I and mean, she, she uh, didn't, she, she bootstrapped the whole thing. She owned 66% of the company at the IPO. She broke the barrier. She broke the barrier. I, I mean, there was, there was, there was nothing like it when she came out. And uh, yeah, now she's been uh, part of taking a cloud ERP company out called Canandy. That's, that's right. Uh, her two sons' names actually uh, mm -hmm. are, are part of that. When we talk about this and when you've interviewed those female tech pioneers, I mean, uh, what was that? Um, was there a sexism back there? Was there something different? Is it any different than where we are today, given all the conversations that are going on today in the public? Well, I mean, something that I think is interesting, in addition to it just having been so much more overt uh, then, is that there was really an expectation uh, among the women, too, that this was the norm. I mean, I don't think Silicon Valley was any worse than anywhere else. It actually, it was 1980 before workplace sexual harassment was recognized as illegal. And even like in 19, I think it was 1974 before a woman could be uh, given a credit card without her husband's permission. And so, this, you know, it, there was just like this pervasive uh, un belief that women were just um, categorically different from men. So when these women encountered sexism, it wasn't as if this was something they'd never dealt with before. But the other thing that I really want to point out, because I don't want to sell the good guys short, I don't want to sell them short now, and I don't want to sell them short then, because there are a lot of them, uh, is that the people on the inside generally treated uh, these women, and it's not just these two women, I talked to video game designers, people who were women, and women who were on, you know, on sort of early computer teams, 
they very much felt, look, we were, we were treated as peers. This was a time where the, you know, the skills were in high demand and it didn't really matter what the person looked like who brought them in the door. And uh, so I think that that on the inside, people understood it. On the outside, people were still doing things like asking women to pose with computers and video games in sort of sexy dresses the way that they did uh, with um, cars so that because that made it look easy to use. So it was a very kind of fractured understanding at the time. Even the fact that, you know, we talk about the birth of the personal computing and the fact that men were uncomfortable typing. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of led to uh, a, a, a not immediate understanding of beautiful design and the fact that this was going to potentially revolutionize, uh, you know, businesses and, 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 and bring in the age of computing. But just that uncomfortable because you know I guess only women at that time were comfortable typing is that a fair is that a fair yeah I, I mean actually in we we just passed the 40th anniversary of Xerox Park trying to show <laughs> the right. rest of Xerox what they were doing and actually um, if anyone is interested I'm doing an event at Xerox Park with Chuck Geschke and Eric Schmidt on uh, the 30th of November, where we're gonna be talking about that, that demonstration and also about Park's legacy. Uh, and at the end of this demonstration, which was literally the first time that these execs ever would have seen, like, you know, WYSIWYG or a GUI or frankly the mouse or anything, they were standing around the outside of uh, you know, the perimeter of this room where people were allowed to try and try it for themselves. Their wives were all sitting there typing. And one of my favorite stories is that one of these execs turned to another one and said, well, what do you think of that? And the, the exec said, oh, I've never seen a man type that fast. <laughs> and that was what the dude pulled out of this demo. Men type fast. And, and, you know, I really think there's something to it also because the the software that brought the PC into our lives was the spreadsheet. Um, the yeah. Park people yep. optimized for Visicalc. the process. Exactly, <laughs> it was Visicalc. And so what the spreadsheet gave you was this huge difference, right? I mean, you change one data point and it, it, it populates the entire spreadsheet again, right? And men already had, were using 10 keyboards and they were just, they, they were used to typing in numbers to adding machines and this thing. So it didn't take much of a social shift for them to start using a spreadsheet, whereas the ramifications were, you know, they were huge. Whereas the personal, for using a word processor, you know, it kind of looked different from something that was typed, but you had to act like a woman. And there was this huge, concern around uh, what they called the clerical stigma of wow. the keyboard wow. that you know that that uh, men wouldn't use it at all so yeah it, it was it, <laughs> and I'm glad you brought that up because yeah it's not just these individual women that we're talking about it was just you know it's the society as a whole just fascinating fascinating that they had these blind spots not recognizing the mouse and the gooey and just concern about the stigma of, of typing, which is amazing. Uh, uh, we, we just have an incredible venture capitalist on the show, and VC influence in Silicon Valley is, has it frankly exploded in the last decade, but is that a new phenomenon? Or has there, I mean, you know, you had Kleiner Perkins, Sequoia, there's been incredible 
rich history of, of uh, venture capital from, from, from the Valley. Can you talk a little bit about what was then and what is now and, and some of the changes that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, I thought, actually, I was, I was really glad that Bruce was on first because I thought um, he said some interesting stuff. And one thing um, that used to be the case was that basically if you were a venture guy, and they were all guys in the beginning, you had real operating experience. So mm -hmm. if you look, so both Kleiner and uh, Sequoia were founded yeah. in 1972. Mm -hmm. And Kleiner was Eugene Kleiner. He was one of the original Fairchild Eight who had worked for William Shockley. Perkins was Tom Perkins, who had worked at Hewlett Packard and, you know, sort of led a really important division there and actually started a laser company. And Sequoia Capital was Don Valentine, who was one of the you know, so-called four horsemen at uh, Fairchild, sort of their record-setting salesman, who then went on to National and did the same thing. And then actually not many people know this, but sort of started Sequoia under the umbrella of the Capital Group. So, so Kleiner came out as an independent entity from the start. Sequoia spun out of uh, Capital Group. But what these guys brought to the table was just this wealth of operating experience. They were not professional financiers. They had actually built companies. And so I thought this was interesting uh, that Bruce, though I think um, he, he, in that particular moment, he was specifically referring to, you know, they had all helped build companies as VCs. Obviously, his operating experience is incredibly rich and deep. And I think that is so important and it's really um, not something that you can take for granted anymore because the Valley has become so attractive to investors from everywhere uh, that they just want to want to invest and may not actually have the kind of background that is ultimately most helpful to entrepreneurs. You know, one thing that, you know, it's great having your historical perspective of what's happening because we often forget that. And and I think in the Valley, we, we have such short-term memories and that, that's been the issue. Um, why should about the Valley in the 70s during the hardware and tech telecom revolution, the Valley in the 80s during, you know, the networking revolution and the Valley in the 90s uh, during the uh, first set of the internet boom? Like what, what's different from how it is today? Um, I'm sorry that I, I just lost your question there. Oh, no problem. I was trying to get a historical perspective from the 80s, the 90s, um, the 70s. What are we learning from that we can apply to today's set of disruptions um, as we went through each of those ages? Excellent. So, I mean, you are pointing to something that's so important about the Valley. People always want to talk about, well, why the Valley get started here? And I mean, I can answer that question. It was this unique combination of sort of technology and culture and money, honestly. Uh, but the really interesting question is, why has the Valley been able to create generation after generation after generation of innovation? I mean, you just hit a bunch of them and we can just, you know, keep moving it forward to mobile and social and cloud. And, you know, I mean, so how did that happen? I think that the interesting uh, commonality through it all, you asked about differences, but I think the common stuff is super interesting, um, is I, I point to two things. Um, one is this sort of generational handoff. So I talked about how Mike Markla, who had been a chip guy, mm -hmm. uh, brought the Apple people, brought Apple up, and you saw this again and again and again. Um, and actually, Steve Jobs, if you ever watch his 2005 uh, commencement address at Stanford, mm -hmm. he talks about um, how he felt like there was a baton that was passed from Packard to Noyce 
to him and how upset he was and how he actually called them both when he got fired from Apple to apologize for what he called passing for dropping the baton. Mm -hmm. um, and the this sort of noise called it restocking the stream. I think and this kind of handoff is really uh, one of the answers to what has been consistent and Silicon Valley needs to hold on to, which is you, you make it and you help the next people make it. And honestly, you make sure the next people who make it, you know, represent a wide range of people. And um, the second thing that has been consistent and so important to the Valley is the role of immigrants. Uh, from the moment that the Valley sort of gets its name, the population, is already exploding and everyone is coming from someplace else. In the 20 years leading up to when I start my book, the population tripled. You had the equivalent of a new person moving into the valley every 15 minutes for 20 years straight. And at first they came from other parts of the United States, but then very quickly it became people coming from all over the world. And at this point, we've got about two thirds of the men and 76% of the women who are between the ages of 25 and 44 who are working in tech were born outside of the United States and more than half of the unicorn founders, you know, half the companies have one or more founders born outside of the United States. And this I think has been such an important secret too because we have been able to attract the best and the brightest from around the world. Wow, mass migration, legal immigration, a uh, whole bunch of places that make the Valley what they are. We're talking here with Leslie Berlin, author of Troublemakers and project historian at Stanford. She's keeping an eye on what works in the Valley, keeping us all straight on the history, and more importantly, unlocking some of the untold stories um, that we all should be learning from as we go forward. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, really hope to get a chance to catch up again in person. Great, take care. Ray, it's no surprise why the hour, this hour on Fridays is my favorite hour of the week. Two extraordinary guests. Again, we could have talked to Leslie for another two hours. <laughs> that was just amazing. Um, and of course, uh, now we uh, end the show with what we ran at called the cleanup hitter spot, where we expect uh, our, our first ballot Hall of Fame Disrupt TV inductee, Steve Wilson, to come and uh, end the show on an incredible note. Uh, <laughs> so, no pressure, Steve. Steve is the vice is that president. That's to do with cricket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got I to gotta use a cricket analogy, not baseball. Uh, Steve Please. Wilson, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Uh, Steve's coverage area span business research theme of digital safety and privacy, data to decision, consumerization of IT. Lately, a lot of discussions around blockchain. Uh, his advisory services to CIOs, CISOs, CPOs, and IT architects include security practice benchmarking, privacy engineering, and privacy impact assessment. He has provided advice to national ID frameworks to governments of Hong Kong, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Macau, Malaysia, and many others. He's an incredible follow on Twitter at Steve underscore lockstep, S-T-E-V-E underscore L-O-C-K-S-T-E-P. Welcome back, Steve, to, Con uh, to I was going to say Constellation, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Welcome back. Good to be here, Vala. Hi, Ray. How are you doing? Hey, good morning where you are, and this is awesome. So we just finished Constellation Connected Enterprise. We talked a lot about blockchain yeah. synchronous ledgers. Are we over the hype? Where are we on this? Set us straight, because you've always been the voice of reason for what's happening with distributed ledgers and synchronous ledgers and blockchain Bitcoin and what's happening. 
Yeah, look, I, I, thank you. That's very kind. I, I, I've always agreed that there was something in this thing. Um, blockchain came along out of almost nowhere. It was an incredibly surprising, incredibly important thing. It, it solved an unsolvable problem, and that's always important. But, you know, I have, I have worked for some years to break through the mysticism. It's not just hype. Like, we get hype all the time, but there's something mystical about the blockchain that, that is just, it's always, it's always driven me mad. So we, we had some tremendous um, sessions, some tremendous panels, as you know, at CCE. I think the videos will be up soon. Um, we, we had the powerhouses and the innovators and the entrepreneurs um, from across the blockchain world. And what's clear to me is that people are simply getting more discriminating about what this thing is for. And instead of saying it's going to change the world, it's going to make trust, um, people are getting really quite precise about what they want out of it. And, you know, like Leslie said a minute ago, um, the computer and word processing had been around for a long time until the spreadsheet came along. And, it, you know, if you tried to describe what a spreadsheet does, it's kind of technical, it's kind of weird. And the good blockchain use cases are like that. They, they get very technical. And... Um, but we need to find a way of domesticating it and embedding those technical things into, into stuff that matters. So, you know, I compare it to, to the computer. Like the computer didn't solve all problems and certainly word processing didn't, didn't actually transform the world immediately. It took quite a long time for us to work out and it was stuff like VisiCalc and spreadsheets. So, you know, with, with blockchain and what we prefer now to call synchronous ledger technologies, because that's really what it's about. It's about synchronizing real time contributions to very complicated data sets. Now, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a nasty elevator pitch, okay? <laughs> and I'm not here to, to, to sort of shill for blockchain because I'm not here yeah. to, to say to you in 25 words, it's gonna transform trust, because sure. it's not. But it is gonna do this, it's gonna, it's gonna help people contribute in real time to complex data sets. So, so oh, sorry, is the, is, the, is the mysticism or the, is that how much of how much of the cryptocurrency and the bitcoins and ethereum and how much of all of that adds to the to the not the ambiguity but you know um maybe slower than expected adoption of the technology or or the hype or maybe maybe more specifically my question is if you if you go in the last 12 months what have you what is there a an area where you've changed your mind in terms of blockchain and its impact based on all of the uh, folks that you advise and the specific use cases that you have seen. You co-authored a blockchain in healthcare with Dave Chow. So yeah. you're like deep into this. So ha have, you, have you pivoted away from a point of view in the last 12 months based on your deep analysis of blockchain and use cases across different industries? Absolutely, absolutely. I did a big pivot in February, March of this year, um, less than a year ago, hmm. and uh, it was all about Hyperledger Fabric. Okay, so let's, you know, I, I absolutely acknowledge what Brian Bellendorf and Hyperledger have done for, um, for a long time. And I also acknowledge IBM because they, they were the first ones to productize or to commercialize fabric. Yeah. Um, by no means are they the only ones. Of course, we've got Microsoft doing very good work with Coco now. And um, in a sense, before Hyperledger, the most important innovators were R3 and the stuff that um, Richard um, Brown at R3 has talked about. So they, they said, hey, there's something really cool about blockchain, but it's actually a long way from enterprise ready. So what problems are we trying to solve? And you know, I won't, I won't go back over the history. You can read Richard Brown's blog, it's fantastic. 
So yeah, I did a pivot because people stopped banging on about trust and and stuff, and they got they got down to business. Um, they also did some interesting things with security. Instead of relying on thousands and thousands of computers out there to to vote on the order of the ledger, um, IBM and others said, look. The enterprise wants a more concentrated computing environment. It's still distributed, but it's not across thousands. It's across a, a distributed, concentrated set of nodes. You also get the same technology with Hashgraph. Um, that, that's a more concentrated, more um, enterprise-ready kind of approach. Um, it, it, and you know, this is an uncomfortable truth, but people are also moving away from the free and open source model because, um, frankly, the decision making and the governance of, of even Ethereum. Uh, but especially blockchain, is terrible. And if you're in the enterprise saying, if, if you've been convinced that the future of, of enterprise computing is this thing called blockchain, your next question is, if there's a bug, how does it get fixed? Hmm. Or if there's a design error, now there have been design errors in the famous blockchain that have persisted for three or four years and they're still not fixed. And they've, they've led to forks, they've led to the blockchain actually being torn up and, and divided. So so much for immutability, right? There's every chance that if you've invested your, your enterprise IT strategy on a blockchain, there's every chance that in a year or two, it's going to stop. So, you know, that's the rationale of private blockchains. And it's, it's an uncomfortable truth because this stuff was born from the, from the libertarianism of, of open source. And I get that. I think that we'll see a middle ground, you know, and Hyperledger is saying there will be a middle ground. A lot of the core technology should be open source, it should be transparent, it should be peer reviewed. But then it's going to be picked up, you know, like database, like the Oracle SQL story. A lot of this open source stuff is going to actually have two lives. It's going to be open source and it's going to be maintained in a proprietary FIFA service kind of model. That's enterprise IT, right? It's, it's sure. back to the future. Sure. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, oh, go ahead. And, and when we think about when we think about your shifts, right? I mean, you're seeing real use cases. We're seeing this actually stuff take into yeah. life. Um, you know, what about the identity and security aspect, right? Uh -huh. Is that changing? Is that part of it? I mean, I mean, this all comes together in a big picture around digital privacy and safety somewhere, right? Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, let's um, let's segue away from blockchain. The the last thing that we could say about blockchain and identity um, and blockchain and healthcare. Um, you know, there's, there's been a hundred use cases for blockchain and they've settled down to three or four really good ones at the moment. Um, supply chain management, especially in the pharmaceutical industry. Hmm. Um, um, complex trade documentation. Um, complex documentation in general is what, you know, a lot of back-end banking is about. So people are concentrating on those areas. Some of the ones that are sort of still nowhere are, are healthcare. You know, I know that IBM and the FDA have announced things, but I don't see anything more than press releases still. There's some promise there, but it's taking a while. Um, there's an organisation called Spiritus Partners that are starting to do some good work with medical device supply chain and provenance, but that's getting really kind of, you know, technical. You won't read about it in the, in the, in the headline of the Wall Street Journal just yet. Identity is another one that's proving really a lot, you know, harder, harder, um, easier said than done. But, um, you know, having said that, the, the big action in identity is, is away from blockchain. The big action in identity um, is now a kind of a lot of soul searching after the Equifax breach. Hmm. So Equifax is going to teach us lessons about security and identity for years to come. Um, the, the sad individuals, which is to say most of the US population, 
are going to be subject to identity theft for the next several years because their most personal, most most valuable, high-grade uh, personal data has been stolen. Um, so, what are we going to do? Are we going to like reinvent the social security system? There's a whole lot of rent seekers now, especially from the blockchain community, that are, that are telling senators we need new social security numbers. We need to re, you know, we need to have some sort of um, crowdsourced social security system, which that would be a trillion dollar impact. I mean, you just, you know, get real folks. The, the, the problem that, that Equifax has proven is that we need to tell the difference between original data, uh, original, whatever that means, and stolen data. Um, and this provenance, you know, I think that the word for the next year or two is going to be provenance. Um, how, how do you tell where the data has come from? If somebody's opening a bank account um, online, quoting a social security number. How do you know that that social security number is coming from the Equifax breach or is it real? And those are the problems we've got to solve. Now, I had an epiphany a, a little while ago. I was helping the Fido Alliance do a big seminar in Sydney. You know, at last, the Identorati came to my hometown and that was pretty cool. Um, and I did a presentation about identity and attributes in the data economy. And my epiphany was that identity and attributes, they're just special cases of data. Um, we're moving into a world where they say that data is the new crude oil, and, and Bruce was talking about that. It's kind of an obvious metaphor, but if you think about it, it, it has legs. Hmm. Now, crude oil um, powers the Western world, powers the, the whole civilization. It leads to fantastic supply chains and fantastic secondary and tertiary businesses. And for, you know, for the last hundred years, we've had new norms and safety standards and, and, and you know, kids know about gasoline, right? Um, you, you can't buy gasoline from the corner store. Um, you, you can't buy it in yard sales. You need a license to, to open a gas station is a serious contribution to the economy and it's treated really seriously. Now, data has to be the same. You know, data is already more valuable than gasoline. Um, Vala, I think you said that the top 10 market caps um, are data-driven companies. So, I mean, bloody hell, what are we doing with this stuff? It is explosive like gasoline. It is dangerous stuff. And, and we need to move really quickly now to the same sorts of safety norms and standards and supply chains and, and piping. Maybe it's literally we need some sort of piping to handle this stuff and to keep it contained and, and to keep it safe. And, um, you know, the next... 10 years, but it's going to have to happen a little bit quicker than that. It's going to be fascinating to, to see how do you construct the digital economy right. and bridging the analog to digital. You know, we've got away with this so far. We've got away with purely virtual, purely digital stuff, pure blockchain. Um, you need to join the stuff to the real world. Sure. And we need things like Fido Alliance. Um, you know, we need sure. hardware cryptography. We need, we need key management. We need, um, devices, we need wearables, um, we need real serious hardware, we need security certificates. Um, wow. Uh, and and that's, that's the future of the digital economy. And I hate, to, I hate to do this given the time we have because we could devote an entire hour to this, but with the General Data Protection Regulation, GDRP, can you just, Thank you. Can you just spend a few minutes, what is it, what's the impact on business, what should executives be thinking about? And I know this is just a horrible question to end the segment because the topic is massive. But I you're can do it in, and, and you want to do it in one minute. I can do it in one minute. Privacy, or better known as data protection, yep. says, you know, data is important. So be sure that you've got data for a really good reason. 
Know what data you've got. Know why you've got it. You know, is it hanging around becoming toxic waste in your databases or do you really need it? Um, tell people what data you've got about them. Tell them why you've got it. Be careful what you do with it. You know, don't keep it secret, but if you need data for your business, then move it around, but make sure that the people who get the data know what they're going to do with it, know what standards apply. Now, that's what GDPR is fundamentally about. It's about data protection in the broadest sense. It's not about secrecy and encryption and access control. It's saying, why have you got data? What are you doing with it? Can you get rid of it when you, when you don't need it anymore? And you know what? It's not about the EU versus Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, um, with Equifax is waking up to the problem of, you know, what the hell are we doing with this crude oil and the, the products that are fueling the digital, digital economy? How do we keep that safe? GDPR comes along at just the right time and we need to stop resisting it. We need to stop saying it's, you know, EU interfering with business. Hell no. It's a, it's a proper set of norms and standards that are absolutely essential for the digital economy. Only you can take that complex topic and make it so succinct and clear in one minute. Kudos. Ray, you, hired the, you surround yourself with the smartest people I know. You surround yourself oh, with smart people. Thank you. We're here Thank with you. Vice President and Principal Analyst Steve Wilson. If you need to know anything about blockchain, synchronous ledgers, privacy, GDPR, and identity. He's your man. And uh, thank you for being thank on the you. show. Happy Friday or Saturday where you are. So. Saturday, Steve. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's, I think, 7 a.m. Cheers, guys. Uh, where Steve is going. <laughs> Time for breakfast. <laughs> so, Bala, we've, so, hey, Bala, we've got three more shows for 2017. This is it. This is crazy. We're you coming know, Ray, to the we, end we, of a crazy 2018. It has. We've crossed 200-plus unique guests, and Ray and I will talk about and summarize the incredible 200 guests that have been on our show. So be on the lookout for some, you know, incredible micro segments that talk about our venture capitalists, startup founders, Fortune 1000 CXOs, uh, best-selling authors, media and analyst personalities. There's different categories that represent these 200 incredible guests. And uh, we're going to also talk about our 2018 guest list, which is going to just uh, blow you away in terms of uh, who we're bringing on our, on our show. Uh, we, are, we have three shows left uh, for calendar year 2017, so that we're not going to have a show on 11-24, 12-22, and 12-29. So before Christmas, New Year, Thanksgiving, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna spend time with family and friends, although you are family and friends on Disrupt. Our next show is on 12-1, episode 87. We're going to have Jay Jacobs, Vice President and Director of Research at Global X Management Company. We're going to have Manoj uh, Sasekna. Executive Chairman of Cognitive Scale, first GM of IBM Watson, uh, if you know Manoj, and then Heather Clancy of Green Biz, and she's also going to possibly join us on our media recap of 2017, where Ray and I are going to talk to some of the most influential media personalities about technology trends that best describe 2017, and also ask for their insights on what they believe 2018 will bring to light in terms of disruptive technology and business and market trends that all of us should be concerned about and, and, and know more about. So that's, that's where we are. And uh, Ray, closing remarks. No problem, eh? It's been wonderful. This is Friday. If it's Friday, catch Disrupt TV show, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And more importantly, every Friday, catch our episodes, catch our Vimeo page, and of course, catch all the reruns. So see you guys out there and have an awesome weekend.